Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, welcome to On the Sporting Couch, a psychological profile and a bit of a therapy session with one of our best-loved sportsmen and women. I'm Gary Bloom, a sports psychotherapist. I work one-to-one with people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, performance issues, end-of-career worries, or addictive behaviours like drinking or gambling. One in four of us will go through a difficult time psychologically in our lives, and hopefully this programme will give a flavour of what goes on between a therapist and the person who today is on the sporting couch. Meet one of the biggest personalities in British football, Sam Allardyce. He played for nine football clubs and has managed ten plus the national team and had remarkable success at Bolton Wanderers and more recently returned West Ham United to the Premier League and somehow managed to save Sunderland and other clubs from relegation. Sam Allardyce has never been relegated from the Premier League and he's got no plans to start now. He catches Patrick Van Arnholt in his arms. They celebrate with a hug and a kiss because Sunderland are on the verge of staying in the Premier League. In 2016, he was appointed England manager, his dream job, but had to resign following allegations by the Daily Telegraph about his business dealings. Allegations never proved. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and Big Sam, Sam Allardyce. Why would you want to go back into football? It's Sam? a drug, Gary. It's a drug that that's very difficult to to shake off. Like you I mean, I think it's uh, it, when you've been involved in it all your life, you miss it. However big the pressures are, and they're getting bigger and bigger every year by the size of the money that's coming in and uh, the pressure that comes upon you you are inspired by it your life is inspired by it because you've been in it for so long that you want to get out there and be with the players and make the players better enjoy the results all being it together when when we're winning and all being it together when we're losing and building that relationship between your staff and the players and, and that build up to the game is something that you you really really miss and and whether I can finally get over it sooner sooner or later I will have to because somewhere along the line no job will be offered to me but, but if the right job comes along um, then I, then I would consider it. What you described to me, Sam, in that little those few phrases is, is an addiction. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. So you're yeah. addicted to your to the love of football. The football, or? yeah. The, so let's the, just drill down, Sam. Let's yeah. we, we've accepted it's an addiction. What are you addicted to? Is it the fame? Is it the power? Is it the influence? Is it the control? What are you addicted to? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm addicted to the fact that football gave me the best life I could possibly choose uh, to have lived in my lifetime as a player, and because it had given me such great um, times as a player. And because I'd seen so much in all four divisions of the Football League and become, because I'd come under so many managements and coaches, I felt I could do it and I could do it do it really, really well. Uh, so I could uh, pass on my, my knowledge and my experiences to young players to make them or help them 
fulfill their dreams like I fulfilled my dream. And I've been an academy director, academy manager, centre of excellence director. I've been a, a, a reserve team coach, a reserve team manager, first team coach, assistant manager, and a manager. I've not been a groundsman. <laughs> I'm an untrained sports psychologist because of the knowledge that I've gained on all the sports psychologists that I've worked with over the many, many years. But football is a dream. It's not a job that you come into where this is work. It isn't work. It's not work. It's never been work. It's never been work for me. I've never worked since I left school at 15. So all I've done is is enjoy the trappings, if that the trappings are, are, are the right word, of, of having the pleasure and being fortunate enough to be a, a player who's played in all divisions and a manager that's managed in all divisions. And in your autobiography, you say, I was king of generating cash, mm. generating money. Just mm. explain that to me, because I'm not quite sure what you mean I generated by more money at football clubs than, than I actually spent. So by the time I'd finished at Bolton in eight years, I was in a plus situation on transfers in and out. So Notch County was the same, um, particularly those two football clubs. Where it was a it was a necessity to be able to support the football club. Blackburn was the same. We had to raise a, the best part of thirty million quid and spent twelve or fourteen of that thirty million pounds on on new players and and uh, that were never going to be as good as the players we got rid of. I'm going to hit the pause button, Sam, and take you right back to the start of your life. And mm. uh, I've read your autobiography. Yeah. You, you talk about a very, very happy childhood mm. and a very, very close family. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Strict, strict childhood with the old man. You know what I mean? He was a disciplinarian. He was a policeman. He was a Sergeant Allardyce in, in, the, in the area, both. He was still the Sergeant Allardyce, whether he was on duty or off duty. Um, it didn't matter if he was at home and somebody needed help, they'd come knocking on the door. I can't remember that actually saw him that much, apart from holidays, where he used to hire a car and we end, we'd end up going to Scarborough or Blackpool because my dad's sister lived there. So I was quite fortunate, really, that some of the sisters actually lived on the coast. Um, and so we got to get to the coast a couple of times. Every, we used to rotate once a year, you know what I mean? And I can always remember my mum and dad falling out over my mum looking at the map and my dad saying where the hell am I going now like you I mean they sent me the wrong way like and my mum saying well I'll do it your bloody self like you I mean but <laughs> you know I mean and, 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 and us in the back saying are we there yet are we there yet are we there yet you know so <laughs> but when we got there we, we you know we had a very good time like you know but my mum and dad didn't come watch me why? because they were too busy doing their own life my dad were too busy on nights or shifts or whatever it would be. Was he proud of my you, mom, Sam? My mom, yeah, especially when he came to watch me in the first team. Never said I played well, mind. Why? Because he always said that he could have done better. And I think that... What did uh, that do to that you, That was Sam? him. What did that do to you when well, you did it, it, For me, it's just a, it, was just a, it was just the old man. Like, maybe maybe next time I'll show him. But, you know, like my mum said, like, he comes back and he's he's always proud of you, like you mean. So don't worry about it. Yeah, that's just the way he is, like you mean. So... For me, school was the worst time of my life. Because you were dyslexic, weren't you? I was dyslexic, but yeah, because I didn't like lessons. I found it very difficult to concentrate, except for this. And this came later in life when I realised that it was all about me being attracted to the teacher that we're teaching. So it was all about the teacher's skills. So if I had a really good teacher, I was very good. If I had an average teacher, I was really poor. So the te the teachers who taught me how to how to um, do that particular subject, if they delivered really really well, I was extremely. They captured my imagination, if you like, and that's happened to me all my lifetime. And I'm a good listener because of being dyslexic. I'm a good listener because I was always in in the bottom class at at uh, in English because I couldn't really spell then. I mean, so so. There was no such thing as being dyslexic then. Obviously, there was, but nobody discovered it. So you're always in. You were always trying to practice, practice and practice, and couldn't get it right. So in the end, you used to copy to get through. You see, as a therapist, this this concept of of almost uh, idealising your teacher, Sam. Mm. 
to me, rings bells about your relationship with mum and dad. It's almost like these people become larger-than-life characters in your life at school, and you you identify mm. them and you attach to them. And you said this has carried on all of your life. Mm. Have I picked something up correctly there, do you think? It's almost like you're looking for that stuff that your dad didn't give you, that sort of saying, yes, Sam, well but, but, done. But in yeah. management, in management, I looked for somebody who was be always better than me and not frightened of it. Because if, if I want that job doing... I want somebody who can do that job better than me. But what happens when you come across a manager who you think, actually, he doesn't know what he's doing here? What was it like then? I'd stick... To, uh, well, in the end, I'd keep my mouth shut and get on with it. And Is that uh, easy? Well, it, it wasn't. But it used to get me into too much trouble if I spouted my mouth off like him in and I, I gave him an opinion. So let's just keep, keep on the past, Sam. Mm. I'm really fascinated, just picking up what we were talking about before, that you talked about joining your first club, like going to Bolton, mm. and you said you were homesick. Terribly. Yeah, because I wasn't in the right... What, what did you miss? Uh, my mum So this is, this, is, this is a powerful relationship yeah. with mum. Yeah, you know what I mean? I was a spoiled one, you know what I mean? That's what my sister said of my brother. <laughs> Are you spoiled? Uh, I think I was spoiled by my mum, yeah. I think I was my mum's favourite, like you mean. So yeah, my sister was 15 years older than me, and my brother's five, nearly five years older than I am, and... Um, so I was a surprise, you know. I don't think I was planned by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, my mum used to, you know, look after us from that point of view, to pack, pack my bag up, make me breast in the morning, I'd jump off on the bus and go travel wherever it would need to be. Were you asked to grow up quicker than perhaps you should have been asked to? Well, I suppose in in terms of coming home from school and, and my mum, my dad working and my mum also working part-time, then... You know, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, I'd do the washing up, make me own tea. So it's almost like you were, you were you know looking I mean? after yourself. And then my mum would come back and say, you know, and Sheila brought, maybe brought something back, and I was always hungry anyway. So <laughs> I'd eat that as well. Um, you know, so sometimes I'd get up in the morning, my dad's on early shift, my mum's had to go out, and, we'd, we'd you know, I'd have three Weetabix before I went to school. Do you think you married very young, Sam, because you wanted to replace that mother figure in your life and somebody to look after you? No, I think I married because I fell in love very quickly. I think there's no doubt about that. I think that we were both in the nightclub and we shouldn't have been because we were both 16. <laughs> both said we were 18 when we met and uh, she wasn't really interested in the beginning, but somehow it came together and that was it really for me. I think that... But you say in your autobiography, sorry to jump in, Sam, you say yeah. that, that your homesickness ends when you meet Lynn. It does, yeah, because... And I'm just wondering what sort of role she plays in your life which takes over the well, role of your well, mum. I, was, I actually got in... Uh, what saved me first, I actually got into some good digs. I was actually brave enough to say, I, I can't stay here anymore. For all of a sudden, football really wasn't that important because I was so homesick. I mean... And the old man said, get your backside back up there, you're not coming back here. And it was a great, best bit of advice he ever gave me. What did you feel when he said that? Well, mum said, no, I'll leave him here. And like, no, he wanted to be a footballer. He chose, get your backside back up there now. But you've made your bed. Yeah, you've made your bed, go and lie in it. Yeah, that's it, effectively. Which was the best bit of advice he gave me, because if, if I'd have stayed back then, I don't know where, I, where I'd have been or where I might have been. So, But then well, we, my mum was brave enough to ring him up and say, you can't stay in them digs anymore. Then I moved in with Lynn. So you had a new family. So a new family then, and then and then we we were two years, or two, just over two years there before, two and a half years before we got married. This is Talk Sport. You're listening to On The Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, the psychotherapist, and Sam Allardyce. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is On the Sporting Couch, a program about good mental health in sport. And our guest in the studio is Sam Allardyce. Let's put it this way, Sam. I wouldn't have liked to have played against you as a centre-forward. <laughs> and I think your reputation followed you a bit. But was, you, was that something that you played on? We met, yeah, yeah, to make it, you make your reputation as you go along. I think that uh, the, the older players were saying, look, you're such a big, powerful guy. You can, you can have some easy games by building your own reputation as a hard man. Did that happen? Oh, definitely. Because you listen to what they said, like you I mean, and and the manager at that time, particularly Ian Greaves, was like, you know, you gotta let them know they're in the game, Sam. Did he used to you verbally? Let them know we're gonna... All of it. And what do you used to say to a centre forward like me? Centre forward like you? Yeah. Hospital menu's good. <laughs> you serious? Yeah. Hospital menu's good. I've heard you quick, but I've not seen anybody limp quick. That was a small part of intimidation then. I know we're on the radio. That was that was that was the. That's a minute amount of stuff that actually came out. Centre forwards to centre halves, from midfield player to midfield player, from full back to winger to I mean we I used to hear all the stories about Tommy Banks and Roy Hartle, Bolton. Mm. Now I'd send him over here, they'll get just the same treatment. I'll put him in that track, no trouble like I mean. I mean Tommy Banks lived his, lived his life as a legend at Bolton and, and spent many of his days after that as an after dinner speaker talking about these stories which you can hear, hear all over verbal intimidation was a hundred times more in my day than it is now were you a bully it's not bullying it's just seeking an advantage to overcome the opposition that you're playing against to gain the advantage to win it's not it's not bullying everybody call it bullying today because we're soft as you know what now aren't we well, this is where you and I would We're probably all disagree. very, very soft. Well, you're a sports psychologist. They're all soft. When, when my lad started with me, we're doing the first few sessions, like I mean, and he sat down and said, you've got to stop all this bullying. And we all went, what bullying? Well, you're bullying them. Bullying who? Well, the players bully each other and you bully the players. And they're going, it's banter. What's the difference between banter and bullying? Today, everything's bullying and not banter now. Banter, banter's not, not the word. Digging each other out, finding a weakness, preying on it. It's all a part of football then. Managers would do it. Then that got passed on. Players would do it amongst themselves. You mean if you used to get caught out, you know, oh, well, you're caught out again and you can't catch him anymore. So you had to get smart very, very quickly because you, you didn't want to be the butt, the butt of everybody else, like you mean. So you had to really... Yeah, keep your wits about you. So as soon as you walked in the door in the morning, you were, you could be tested at any time, like I mean, to see, see whether you could cope or not. That makes you a better player in the end because it makes you de- realize that w- what environment you're in, and when you go out there, it's it's a game of football that you play as for your profession, for your livelihood. It doesn't last very long, and you got to do the best you possibly can at that moment in time. Um, the the banter and the and and the the verbals that used to go on then were you know were were you know you, you, compared to now you wouldn't even dream of going there now. You have a long and successful career as a as a player, Sam. What mm. made you believe you'd be a good manager when you were coming to the end of your career? By uh, by all the others I'd had, as all the other managers and coaches I'd had, I'm thinking that there's a, there's a lot to be to be learnt from all those experiences and um, 
and you got to go and test yourself and see whether you can be better than some of them. You know I mean, and then to to see if you can manage that squad, and then see how far you can get in the game. Like you I mean, and I think that that was uh, very important. I could get the opportunity. The hard bit is getting the opportunity. You Gary. got it. You got it. Yeah, but that's there was at one stage where I think Lynn had, Lynn was a PA now. She'd be called PA. She was manager's secretary then. We wrote out one stage. I mean, must have been 30, 40 job applications for League Four at the time, or you know, non-League. Barely got a reply. Wondered whether he, you know, whether they'd ever get back into football again. And uh, and I think that if you don't give up and you persevere long enough, sooner or later something just drops, drops in your favour. And 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 I think that. Uh, you, you, you was times when you were thinking about well, what other career I'm going to have to think about another career because I'm not going to get back into football now. You know what I mean? So what did all the rejection letters do to you, Sam? Did it make you more determined, or were you more determined? Yeah, so I'll show them type of thing. I'm not giving up, like you mean. So I mean, I ended up who'd end up going to Limerick. You? Yeah, just to get a job, just to ch- test yourself as a manager for the first time. I lost lost my job with Brian Talbot at West Brom, and and then. Uh, and then Father Joe rang us like I mean, and and you know I had a I had a great time with Father Joe because he was a wise, wise man, you know, in a very difficult area in uh, in Limerick, same area as the team played in. You had such success in your career, Sam. Is there ever a time when you put your head in your hands and thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm just not sure what's going on here. I'm doubting myself. Or have you always had that terrific self belief? The Blackpool situation became extremely extremely difficult in the end because of the big case against Owen Oyston at the time mm. completely distracted what from the football club what was happening and that was us trying to get promoted and we finally I, I got Blackpool to the playoffs in 18 months and things were going really well and the player I thought the players had responded and we we recruited some good players which was which is what I was learning about how important recruitment was, and then that and that I got sacked. Um, what does it What does it do to you, Sam? Well, that's that... the worst sacking of all, because West Brom was difficult, but was it really my fault as assistant manager? For, you know what I mean? I'm not so sure how much of the burden I can, but that happened because the manager picked you, and so you go with him. Um, but Blackpool getting sacked when you get when you when you know you're so near but yet so far, and and then getting then getting sacked by losing in the playoffs it's it's a, it's, it's a difficult one to take. Well, why? You haven't really answered my question. I'm going to press on you again. Go on, then. And have you ever seriously doubted your own ability to manage a football club? Not particularly because because there isn't one football club. That's been worse off when I've left than when I've started. You know, when you take a football club over, it's in that position. When you leave a football club, it's in that position. There's a lot of factors involved on what you're doing, and, and what you do is you get wiser and wiser as you move on. You know, and when you get, and when you get, sometimes people saying to your owners, saying to you, you're far too clever for your own good. Who said that to you, Sam? Being Phil Gartside. Are you too clever for your own good? Not really, because all I am is more clever than him at football. <laughs> and, but he thought he was just as clever as I am, and he wasn't, which is one of the problems you face. You face billionaires now telling you what to do in your job because they think they're just as good as you are at football, having only been it for a small time. They are getting things said to them that they're not used to, like you can't do that. So you've got to be very clever at how you deal with that with your owners because these guys are not used to you saying... No, you can't do that to them. No, you can't do this to them. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Sack him. Get rid of him. You can't do it in our game. They might be able to do it in their own industry, but they, you know they can't do it here. You've got to be able to try and get them to understand why. Why are you? Why are you involved in this game? I tell you what's coming out of this conversation, Sam, and it's in the book as well. And I've only just clocked mm. it myself. I think something happens to you, Sam, when you come across rich and powerful people who know less about the game mm. than you do, that you want to pitch yourselves yourself against, them. against them. Correct. And that's the bit that drives you forward. Yes. 
Would you agree with me? Mm. Don't if you say no, it's got to turn into a yes. That's oh. my. So if you tell me I can't have it, I want it. You don't like that rich and powerfulness, do well, you? I don't mind rich and powerful, but but just listen, just listen to me. Who's you're the expert in your field? Why you've made billions of pounds? I accept that. You're very, very clever. Very, very good at what you do. But don't tell me about but, football. But don't, please, don't keep telling me about how I should do my job. So I'm going to talk uh, about one or two characters that you've had to do. Mm. People like Karen Brady. But Karen, Karen was more, more a fringe. Uh, involved in my career at West Ham. She was totally focused 100% on the new stadium. I dealt with David Sullivan. It was much more important for me to deal direct with the owner. Did you respect him? Absolutely, yeah. Did he respect you? I think so, yeah. I think we had a, we had a really good relationship in terms of why we didn't agree a lot. We never held it against each other. You we moved a- on. You had a tough time with the fans, though, at West Ham. How did you deal with that, Sam? Long ball Charlie, they used to call you, and all that nonsense. Yeah, but, yeah, but hoof ball, they used to say. Um, but that's that's a tag that lay, laid from other managers many years ago, that you're never going to... I accept I was never going to get rid of it, like you mean, because I, I won a bet with, um, with the, the press office. I've won many bets this way at the press offices, going into a new job and saying, uh, do you want to bet? And they'll go, what? And I'll go, I'll bet you this, I'll give you, let's say, I'll give you 500 quid if they don't mention my style of football in the first minute. And you, if they do mention my style of football in the first minute, you give me 50 quid. And it's normally within 30 seconds. Can press have no, no more or less intelligent questions than they always have? Don't believe perception. Look, research yourself. And that a lot of them don't research yourself. They just take it as that's the norm. It's like the Harry Kane thing at the moment. Get off his back. He's taken over from Wayne Rooney. Wayne's gone. He's gone to America. Who's turning his name? It's Harry Kane. He's not this. He's not that. He's not this. He's not that. Everywhere. Not. He's looking a bit this. He's looking a bit that. And that would start by one of the pundits starting saying he doesn't look right. He looks tired. He looks fatigued. Everybody's still saying he's looking tired. Look fatigued. It's just unbelievable. What goes around the fake news? Yeah, let's write about it anyway, if it's not true. Obviously very proud uh, to be named uh, the New England manager today and uh, really look forward to the task in hand and trying to qualify first for the World Cup and then move on from there. Sam Allardyce is off to a winning start. Adam Lallana has scored right at the end of the game, almost the last touch of the game. And England have beaten Slovakia in Tanava by a golden L. After one match and 67 days in charge, Sam Allardyce has left his post as England manager by mutual agreement. It follows a newspaper investigation claiming he offered advice on how to get around rules on player transfers. A Football Association statement said Allardyce's conduct was inappropriate. What did that do to you, Sam? There you are, you've got the top job in English football and you have it... Well, uh, did I just finish? Yeah. You have it ripped away from you by people who are not acting maybe quite ethically as journalists. We, as, as high-profile, are always in firing line for somebody to try and do something to you to, to stop you what you want to do for, for whatever b- bizarre reason. I'm going to jump in there, for, Sam. I want to know what it did to you psychologically. What it did to me was it was very depressing for oh, three months, four months. Uh, How did you deal with that depression? Family, really. Kept out the public eye for, for a long time. Went away with the my wife, took in some sunshine in our and our best places. I think that me, me wife and family kept me sane because, what because they're the you? most important. You look, it happened, you've got to get over, you've got to move on. That's what we do as a family. We all stick together. It's rotten what they've done, but, you know, we, we've got to try and, you know, got to try and deal with it. Because I get to worry about them, like, I mean, about the stick that they, not so much me, me daughter and, and my son do, but their kids. Because, you know, how cruel school is or your grad dad's corrupt what the the telegraph said they never accused me of but but they did actually put it right next to my picture so while they didn't say i would say it they put the word corruption 
you know, right next to my picture, like I mean. So all that stuff that came out was massively over-exaggerated. Overcoming that, you have to, and I've never looked in the past too much. I've never dwelled on the past because I can't change it. We can learn from the past. So. Well, I've learned an awful lot from the past. That's why I'm. I'm going to ask you a tough question. Probably the hardest question I'm going to ask you. Do you understand why the Telegraph came after you rather than somebody else? Yeah, I know why. Why? Because they couldn't find anybody else they really wanted to to find and prove what they'd done, and because they'd spent so much money investigating all those months and not actually come up with what they come up with is who we've got left. Well, we've got the England manager. You're a very, very clever mm. man when it comes to financial dealings, and you understand the complexities mm. of how money works in football. Mm -hmm. Do you think, therefore, you were a target? Probably, because I was a manager and doing that, probably. And I, I chose not to do that after do Bolton. Chose I, not to do what? Any of the money side of it. I chose to leave it alone to... to to other people because Bolton was where it was and because it was my my love, my favourite football club because there were no because the new board took over who were, who were inexperienced I took the challenge on I took the challenge on to try and cope with all that to cope with all the contracts and not just the players contracts but the staff contracts where, where With, within, within my department within my budgets so I'd get all my budgets and and try to use my budgets the best way I possibly could and trying to make sure that those we could get the best player we, like I said before I get more staff and take one player less the board tried to restrict me to pay only a certain amount of money and we couldn't go above that and I'd say no no it's my budget if I if, if I stay within budget if I want in other words we paid JJ Kocha twice as much as we paid anybody else because it was J.J. Okocha, and we got him on a free transfer. I'm just trying to think as a therapist here, would you ever be at a point where you say, you know what, I don't need to work anymore, I'm financially... Well, well I don't need to work anymore, but but that's, that's not... Financially, I don't need to work anymore, but personally, I need to be active. And it, let's face it, that we never knew what the Premier League was going to no. be or escalate to. And it, when, if you've been a part of that for so for so, so long... And, the, and, and part of the reason for being able to stay in the Premier League for me, if I could explain to anybody else or any manager that may be listening, or young manager, is being, being able to adapt and adjust to change. Can you be ahead of, can you be a part of the change? And, uh, and, and, and my expertise lie in football, not nowhere else. In other words, people will tell me, I'm certainly my wife will tell you that you're, you're an expert in everything when you get going. Why don't you? You're not in on that subject. Why don't you keep your mouth shut? Like everything. But obviously, when people sometimes ask certain questions, I give I give my opinion. But certainly in football terms, the experiences have been have been the a great a great journey for me. And and when we talk about the dark side, which that is, let's not forget it's only a small period of my career because the upside well, been has been all for years and years and years and years so so there's you take the you take with the rough with the smooth and and you you move forward and um and I, and it's been a it's been a even you know the england thing i'm a, i'm it's never never going to forget it but what did know, you think of the, the world cup when you're watching england play in the world cup in, in russia well, it took me a long time to be able to watch england first and foremost you know after what had happened with the telegraph can you even you watch know, the games i couldn't in the beginning I couldn't. Did you um, enjoy the summer in the World Cup or not? Uh, Did you think not this as much as not as much as as I have done in the past? Did you think this could be my it could team? Be, it could have been me. That wouldn't have been my team. But whether I'd have that squad or that players, whether I'd been as brave as Gareth would have been, I don't know. And now, when you look at England, I think they're on the great road. They're on the great track. That could have been you, Sam. It could have been, yeah. You know, but it isn't. So, you know, I'm I'm comfortable in life and uh, co comfortable with. The, the position at the moment. Everton was, you know, Everton dumped me. Finished eighth and, you, you know, you're still not good enough, like I mean. So you, you move on. So you, you can you can look at the devastation it caused you when you first lost your job at Blackpool and think, how am I going to cope? How am I going to get by? How am I going to 
feed my family? How am I going to pay my mortgage? And then you you get the you get comfortable in in late, later years by your experience and by the fact that that if people want to employ you and they fire you, it's not it's, it's going to be very disappointing. But it's not going to affect your life or your family's life. What's well? I'm going to I, I'm going to th- the firing. Th- I'm going to throw this one, turn this one around. I think it's it's a, been a huge cost to you, Sam. I mean, it's been fantastic success, but I think it has had a huge cost to you, Sam. Your health has not always been a hundred percent. It's a hugely. Well, uh, ex- I'm, not, I'm not so sure that. But, but, well, we all know the pressures of management. That's, that's is, what I'm is going against, to. Is against itself. We start start we started the the LMA with. With everybody at the LMA, when I when I got wired up with um, Harry Bassett at I Leicester, remember. you know what I mean? Uh, it was a fantastic time um, looking at manager stress levels. They were never really equated as much as they were in that programme with Trevor McDonald. And what came about that is the LMA were good enough, even though financially we weren't that great, to set up the management health side of of uh, what we want to do so our wellness center got set up there and then and is massively um massively in power now in for all managers across the country at every level to come and get tested on a regular basis because uh, because we spend a huge amount of time um not all of us, but quite a lot of us, me included, spend a huge amount of time looking after every everybody else and forgetting to look after ourselves. That's the bit I'm getting at. Sam. You mean you but, have to look after yourself? But we do, yeah. Well, you do now. And from that time, there, I mean, I had two two stents in 2009 um, at Blackburn Rovers, and I asked um, I asked my cardiologist there, and then is it time for me to pack in? Why would you want to pack in, Sam? Why? Only if you want to. You'll be all right if you do do this differently, that differently, this differently. Do that differently in moderation. Doesn't have to be drastic, and you'll be okay. So, so I was, you know, if he'd have said to me, "You've got to pack in now," that's the end of it. I would have packed in, but he said no. So, I'm sure my wife would have wished she said yes. She's always been. She's always. <laughs> Welcome back to On The Sporting Couch's Psychological Profile. Our guest in the studio is Big Sam, Sam Allardyce. Because of your background, Sam, you've been very much at the forefront of sports science, sports psychology. Mm. Have you ever seen a therapist? Yeah, mine was uh, started in America where it was it was Tampa Bay Rowdies and we, we used to borrow Tampa Bay books, guys. And there was a huge education for me in... In the belief of that in America they followed what the American footballers did as best they could, so we had the masseurs, we had the sports psychologist, and we had a had a psychiatrist where the sessions were compulsory every week. I was absorbing all this information at that particular time as a player, only as a player, but it registered in my mind that I never forgot. Never forgot it. What did you learn about yourself as an individual, Sam, working with psychologists and psychiatrists? I learned how to be a better manager, be a better person, be able to control um, certain situations better. Uh, More importantly, how to deal with the pressure. Because the pressure was far greater, greater in the early stages trying to forge a career in the game because of the, the need to earn for your family, for your mortgage and, and to do as best you possibly could for your family. You have a devastating fallout of income when you move from a footballer to a, to a coach. I'd like to talk about the future, Sam, as we as we head towards the, the end of our, our, our chat together. What would you like to do next, Sam? What's the next chapter for Sam Allardyce? Um, what would you love to do? What if I well, gave if I'd you... love to do, I'd love to uh, perhaps be either... A director of football, or a, or maybe a chairman of a football club, if that's at all possible, because I do I do think I've got the the experience and the understanding how to try and try and pull it all together and be successful. Whether you know whether it's the most financially 
best and best off football clubs and uh, so we can go and buy the best players in that whatever league it is or whether it's about building a uh, building slowly i think if 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 i was with a a group of owners or a consortium that bought a football club and asked me to be a part of it i would ask them how patient are they going to be because we don't we don't have a i was i i got a 10 year contract at bolton we built such a successful time for the Wanderers. By the way, if I got sacked, I wasn't going to get 10-year payoff, by the way, or an eight-year payoff. It was a one-year payoff, by the way. But but I could build now. We got Bolton promoted in 18 months. Bolton actually gave me three years. So here's a three-year contract. You've got three years to get us back in the Premier League because the, the financial position we're in is so bad that we'd like to try and sort the financial position out and try and get back in the Premier League in three years. We did that in eight, eight, 18 months. So tell us, take a football club, for example, like Manchester United, and there's mm. been a lot of talk about a director of football going in there, mm-hmm. to, in there to offer mm. them some stability. Yeah. Is that kind of the, the role that you would you would crave, or was is it? It's not cra- it's not craving the role, and it's 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 a it's a difficult role in England. It's more difficult to, to accept a p- director of football in England than it is in any other European. Why? Because it, because in Europe they're not managers, the coaches. In England, we're managers. So if you were director of football, say, at a, a top Premier League club... So I'm your go-between, mm. between the owners and and you. You would employ a coach rather than a manager? No, I'd employ a manager. And I'd want him to manage the team and manage his coaches and manage each department. I'm not so sure a coach can do that. You know, I could, I could, if you talk to Bobby Robson, like, you know, when he went to uh, PSB, you know what I mean? He said that I was finished two o'clock every day went home because I was the coach of the first team that were it I wasn't responsible for anything else it were great so there was you know I had the players coming I had an input in in the players talk about players coming in and players going out but that was my that was my responsibility I wasn't responsible for anything else so I was the coach so players were bought and sold by other people not by not by Sir Bobby and all all, all the other coaches. That's why most foreign coaches love it here, because they can manage more than they can in the clubs that they come from. What do you mean? So, so that's a that's a big difference. But it's changing. It's changed an awful lot. We're obviously we're going more and more like the Europeans week week in and week out. But the problem is with with the European with us and the European, we're not used to it, and we're not experienced in it. So our choices are far not as good as the choices that are made on the European clubs who've been doing it for a huge amount of years. And that relationship between the coach and that director of football or finance director is far better than the relationships, I think, that we get getting here. People refer to you as Big Sam. Is that mm. a big personality? Do you think that's fair? Big personality? Uh, big character? I, I, big I, physically? I, want, I wanted to be known as Big Sam, innit? It's like a brand almost, isn't it? Your own <laughs> brand, innit? You know, people recognise and know who you are, like you mean, and then, and you, then you, you like have an identity. Called... You have an identity, don't you? Two big questions I'd like to ask you, Sam, which um, which you, of all people, you, you will understand. When do you think a current Premier League manager will openly discuss suffering from mental health issues uh, like some high-profile players have managed to do? I think that uh, that there's there's one or two of us that have have, uh, have suffered from mental health problems who've been dealt with privately. I think if you if you if you if you quantify depression now, then we've all had it. I know dep- depression is quantified today. If you took us back fifteen years, you know, twenty years, twenty five years, it wouldn't be quantified as depression then. Have you been depressed, Sam? Well, if you talk about being miserable because you haven't won about, yeah, you could say that's depression. If you could talk about not wanting to get out of bed. That's a duvet day, we call it. Yeah. If you're not wanting to get out of bed in the morning and go training, you could call that depression, like you mean. But, you know, when you're, when you're on, the down, on the downside, you have to rely on two things. This is your choices. You have to rely on your family and you have to rely on your staff to get you through it. And if they're good and they can see what's happening, they will intervene and get you through it. And then obviously if you've got somebody in, in, in you want to talk to in in uh, 
in psychiatry, sports or clinical psychiatry, then you'll do that. And that's one of the big things that happened to me at Bolton when we had a, when we finally got the okay to take on, the, take them on full time. We finally got the opportunity to talk to talk about where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. How do you think you're going to get there? You know what I mean? And and I could talk about that with them, and it's better talking about that with them rather than the other staff or the other staff members and talk about my worries and my concerns because they could give me some guidance, particularly on, on, they got me to sit in the stand. So you're a nightmare on the bench. <laughs> jumping and jumping up and down. Get upstairs and get out of the way. So I went upstairs and got out of the way. Linked myself to the TV monitor and mm. the earpiece. I mean, and was so much calmer. So how would you deal with players like Aaron Lennon and Danny Rose that are struggling to cope with mental health issues? Oh, I think I'd, I'd find them the best best possible help we could find them. And I don't know too much about the Aaron Lennon situation. Um, but the big thing for a player today is coping with all the all the aggravation that they, they have to cope with outside of the game as well as inside. So there is no sanctuary if that's the right word for them apart from perhaps in the in the home you know because where can they go to relax so many people will be listening to this show and they'll be fascinated by your career but they they too might be going through difficult times at the moment what would your advice to anybody who's listening to this program thinking <sighs> i'm having a tough time where do i go like i said it's it's you have to be if not you, somebody close to you has to be brave enough to say it. If you if if you don't believe you are um, suffering with anxiety or depression, then you you have to be big enough to talk about it, either with somebody in the profession or your family or some friend needs to make you aware of it. Like you mean, so you know it's a very very delicate subject, and for me. Um, Unfortunately, the backing through the government and NHS have completely ignored this area for far, far too many years. And, and when you listen to the stories about they get diagnosed with depression, but then have to wait four or five weeks to go and see somebody and then follow up is another two or three weeks, then it's no wonder the suicide rate's increasing, like I mean. So... I just think it's a great shame that we are not brave enough to tell people that we are we are struggling, and because it's because it can't be seen, you know, it's oh, don't be soft, get on with it. Particularly if you're a man, I think, you know. But you know, there's, there's as many women suffering from depression. I think that than there, there are men. In fact, w women more so. If sort of what happens to them with their hormones and postnatal depression and stuff like that. And I'm not so sure that we have we have enough expertise in our country trained to cope with that demand now. But certainly in football, you have you've got the finance to sort it out. The player's got his own financial to sort sort his own out, which is probably something or one one line we may may they may choose to go down. It would be be great. But what you can't have is you can't be dependent on them. And that's one of the things I found out one or two of the sports psychologists I had where players were appearing to become dependent on them. In other words, they needed to speak to them before every game. That's not what sports psychologist is or psychiatrist. You can't make them dependent on you. Because you're not doing your job properly if you do that. Sam Allardyce, many thanks for joining me on the Sporting Couch. Cheers, Gary. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a psychological profile of one of our best-loved sporting personalities. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please visit our website, talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch.
Well, there's just time to tell you what you can expect from this second series of the programme. Over the next ten weeks, there's the opportunity to hear some compelling episodes that were broadcast over the summer here on TalkSport and also plenty of new interviews with guests including Stylian Petrov, Sharon Davis and fellow Olympic medalist Kath Murray. Stylian's story is of his battle with leukaemia and is particularly inspiring after the former Aston Villa and Celtic midfielder was only given a 25% chance of surviving. The doctor sat across me and he said, uh, we think you've got uh, leukaemia. Now, it's not preparation, it's not anything that you know will calm you down. We're 99% certain you've got leukaemia. And only a 25% chance of surviving. Of surviving. You said to me you cried for 20 seconds. 20 seconds. That's what after my, I've called my wife. I've told her she needs to turn back, put the phone down, and I burst crying. It took me 20 seconds. I remember it was very quick. I realised how serious it is. I said to myself, if I start crying, my, my wife is very emotional. I've got two very good kids, younger kids. Uh, I need to be strong, like I've always been. But Stilene, if somebody told me, broke that news to me, I'd have cried for more than 20 seconds. I've cried after, but at that moment, I couldn't cry. And swimmer Sharon Davis opens up about how she came to terms with missing out on Olympic gold, thanks to drugs cheat Petra Schneider. This was a, an East German society behind the Iron Curtain, and these were young girls that were plucked from obscurity and given extremely nasty drugs, which had massive side effects. And one of my big soapbox issues with the IOC was the fact that they did not protect them any more than they protected me. And so those people are very sick. And I've met Petra since. She still sounds like a bloke. She has heart problems. She has fertility problems. And I would not swap my medal for her gold if that's what I had to have to win it. And for me, that was always the case. You know, I did not want to look like a man. So join me, Gary Bloom, every Sunday at 8pm on TalkSport for On The Sporting Couch. Or you can listen back to the programmes on our podcast platform, Acast. Well, that's it for now. Remember, there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.